0: Welcome to Adapt Nation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katarzy, and today we're talking all things back pain. Sexy, huh? I know, you're probably thinking this is not exactly the big bang entrance into 2020 that you would be expecting from Adapt Nation. Well... Firstly, Happy New Year, guys. I hope the festive period and the New Year celebrations were super enjoyable and you are raring to be your best and having a blast this year. And secondly, whilst back pain may not be sexy, adaptation is all about removing the roadblocks to your full potential, challenging the status quo and arming you with the knowledge so you can fully own your life. And when it comes to roadblocks, back pain is the leading cause of disability globally. Think about how many people don't exercise, struggle to move youthfully, are restricted in their jobs and social life and have a cloud of pain and distress over their heads due to chronic back pain. It is a huge deal. But here's the thing. Our backs are incredibly robust and we've been fed a load of unfounded dogma from the posture and back police. We've also placed far too much emphasis on aging, degeneration, injury, surgery, and opioid medications when it comes to the discussion and treatment of back issues. Well, with that said, be prepared to hear a different story today. We've got on the refreshing and groundbreaking professor, Peter O'Sullivan, joining us remotely all the way from Perth, Australia, ...to give us a crash course on the reality of our backs, back pain, back pain management... ...and how to have a healthy back into your old age. Peter is a professor of musculoskeletal physiotherapy in Curtin University, Perth... ...and is one of the most influential and innovative names in this speciality. With half his time spent on clinical research into pain and pain disorders and the other half of his time spent treating thousands of people with pain issues. And as always, this is an insightful and hugely practical interview with big ideas, mind-blowing concepts, and has the potential to make a big difference to so many people's lives. You can check out the show notes for a full rundown of the topics we discuss And feel free to comment on the AdaptNation.io show notes page if you have any questions or comments regarding this discussion in particular. Look, Peter is a great guy. Really interesting to speak to and so refreshing. I am so glad I had the chance to connect and I'm sure you will enjoy this one loads. So let's get into it. Let's talk all things back pain with the marvellous Professor Peter O'Sullivan. all righty guys so today we are talking about something that we don't often speak about which is pain so we might talk about psychological pain but we don't often talk about physical pain now we've had Bryn Jenkins on on the the podcast several times talking about his rehab work and the work he does with his his clients to improve their function form and deal with some acute pain but we've not had pain expert on the conversation. And we are going to do that today. Now, what we're going to speak about specifically is low back pain and the narrative around that being the second greatest cause of US disability. We're also going to talk about this in the context of training. So, you know, people hear about posture issues and how we should always be trying to have an upright and straight back we talk about issues such as butt wink when you're squatting and how you need to have a, a square and straight back when you deadlift and squat and rounding thoracic or flex lumbar is an issue. So we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to put it in the context of, you know, some leading experts such as Dr. Michael Ray uh, around pain and pain management. And that is more than just a biomechanical issue, as well as taking notes from the likes of Mark Rippetoe on his... Uh, suggestion that we should load our backs to make them healthy and strong and not avoid loading as well as taking note from the likes of john e sano and his mind body prescription and again having a dialogue that our pain is more than just a biomechanical issue and i'm personally guys a big proponent of biomechanical function and the role of rehabbing our body ourselves through proper function strength mobility range of motion and stability but hey, I'm no expert. I'm just learning as I go. So, why don't we get this conversation going with someone who is considered a leading and influential, innovative individual in this spe- specialty of pain and lower back pain in, in particular? With the uh, professor of muscu- muscular skeletal physiotherapy at a university in Perth, we have the one and only Peter O'Sullivan. Welcome on the show, Peter. Thanks very much. I would love to just have a little bit more about you, your narrative academically, vocationally, just so we yeah. can see it. Yeah,
1: sure. Um, well, I grew up in New Zealand and um, I did my basic training in physiotherapy in New Zealand. And um, pretty quickly that um, I needed to broaden my understanding of what I was dealing with. So I quickly uh, entered the area of dealing with pain Um, as a physiotherapist. And so I I went to Australia, I went to Western Australia to do further education. And this is back in 1990. And there is very little research around that time um, in terms of what was helpful for managing pain disorders. Um, And uh, I I worked in two different care settings after I did my postgraduate training, uh, both in a pain clinic where people were profoundly disabled with pain. And uh, living was um, just a huge challenge for them, uh, and then in a private practice setting where pain was more, the, more of a bother, um, but they were functioning. And so I saw these two very different spectrums. And the tools that I've been taught as a physiotherapist to deal with bothersome pain, which is more you know hands-on techniques that give short-term pain relief, just didn't, just were not effective um, uh, for these people with really disabling pain. Uh, and so I kind of saw that spectrum and, and that really led me uh, into a, a, a research career where I did my PhD. And then since that time, um, I've worked both clinically and, um, and as a researcher um, and, and an educator. So I, ba- I basically spent half my day working with people with persistent and disabling pain of any area of the body. But I see a lot of back pain because it is very common. Um, and then we do research, clinical research. I'm um, looking at understanding mechanisms of pain, understanding management of pain. Uh, so I have a really cool job, really, where I spend half my time working with the problem and then half the time researching the problem.
0: That's fantastic. And I think you need that balance of both academic curiosity and real world, like how does it work with people, right? And you, you get the yeah, benefit of both.
1: Yeah, and I think curiosity has probably been the thing that's held me in my career, Um. I'm a very curious person. I've got a naturally questioning mind. I don't uh, tolerate dogma for dogma's sake well. And so um, part of the joy of being a researcher is we can literally um, ask questions of our beliefs and test them. (laughs) And almost every time the things that we thought we believed in uh, are not um, demonstrated by the evidence, and so that forces us to update our mm. beliefs and then reapply that in a clinical setting and say, what does that mean for me as a healthcare practitioner dealing with someone with pain when the things that we thought we knew were true actually not demonstrated by the research that we do and so it 's a really inter- been a very interesting journey for me
0: well, one of the reasons peter that we 're speaking is that I had an appointment with a musculoskeletal physician a few months ago. Um, just someone local to our area in um, in Buckinghamshire. And we were speaking about my issue in particular, uh, which was more neural um, to do my hands, it's got nothing to do with my back. But I had said something just, um, you know, off the cuff. I said something about, yeah, my, my posture and, you know, I, sh- I need to work on it, work on my straight back, whatever. And she said, well, actually, no. Um, there's a lot of research to suggest that our obsession with a straight, posture, a, a upright back, perhaps is unfounded. And this mm. idea of loading our back in, in a in a straight position may not necessarily be the right thing to do. And then she went on to say, there's this great guy called Peter O'Sullivan, you've got to find him, you've got to speak to him, because he will give you um, a different yeah. narrative and something that flies in the face of what we've been hearing for so long. So I'm, I'm excited yeah. to hear uh-huh. your position. But why don't we get started with yeah. The, the existing dogma like right? help us yeah, understand yeah. what you yeah. know the existing clinical um yeah. guidance or or, yeah. or, or discussion yeah. is around low back pain where it comes yeah, from so, and what we have to do
1: so. yeah yeah it's such an interesting area to take on i mean my first year as a um physiotherapy student um, my first day was a posture photo that it was taken where I was put up against a plumb line. I was told how terrible my posture was, and um, uh, you know, there was a huge emphasis in my training around this idea of uh, the spine needs to be aligned. And you hear this with these, you know, sensationalist um pod, you know, um uh, news feeds around tech's neck. There was a, you know, like where. Somehow we're damaging ourselves if we deviate from neutral or upright. Um, uh, Our group just published the paper a couple of weeks ago, um, questioning this whole belief that you've got to keep your back straight when you lift. And it came with such anger. People get so upset when Mm. you question dogma. And it fascinates me from a number of levels because I think we have this view that – Posture taps into lots of things. It taps into desirability. It taps into what we see as um, um, you know, to the fashion industry to um to what we perceive as something that looks good. Um, so you know, we castigate people who might have slouched posture around shoulders or a poking neck and tell them that actually what they're doing is going to harm themselves, etc. And same with um this view around around the back. That um, with lifting, that you've got to keep your back straight because if you round your back when you lift, you're going to load your disc and you're in, going to increase your risk of injury. And certainly, these are beliefs that I held as a young practitioner because they are the things I was taught. But they're actually, if you if you practice them, they're actually very uncomfortable. Um, and uh, I, you know, I had an injury in my early career where um, I had a ski injury in New Zealand actually, and I landed very heavily on my back. And I put these things into practice for absolute pickle, trying to hold my posture stiff and straight. And, And I ended up in a lot of pain. And one day someone said to me, why are you holding yourself so awkwardly? And I had this moment of realization that I was holding all this tension on my body based on a belief, and it felt deeply uncomfortable. Um, and so that was one of the catalysts for, for us looking into um, this issue with posture, um, and more recently around lifting. Um, so posture and sitting and standing and then and lifting uh, in a number of studies. And, um, and what we found is, well, when you sit up straight, which there's nothing wrong with sitting up straight it does hold more tension in your body it's hard to work um, and if you do it all day and you don't vary it it might become quite tiring and if your if your muscles are, and your structures are sensitive it might be quite come uncomfortable so it's not dangerous to do but, but it's not particularly relaxing. Um, and so I'm sitting to you with my legs crossed, slouched back into my chair, it's very relaxing. I've had a long day. Um, but we would demonize a posture like that, say, oh, that's bad for your back and it's gonna increase your risk of neck pain, headaches, back pain, goodness knows what. Um, uh, and so we've also done studies looking at um, populations of young people um, and also older people to go, what, is, what does normal posture look like? Um, and um, basically, Um, you know, there are a whole variety of postures that are out there. And, and, and interestingly, the thing that best predicts someone's posture is their gender. So males tend to sit more rounded and slouched than females. And Mm -hmm. part of this, I wonder is social conditioning. If you think about who gets posture messages and who probably adheres to them. And I've, got a daughter who has had these posture messages at school through dance, through, you know, all these layers of her life of sit up tall, pull your belly in this, this desirability of what we think we should look like. And then we've attached this kind of health component onto it to say, well, if you don't do that, you're going to end up with a hunchback or you're going to end up with, you know, terrible pain or you increase your risk of injury. And actually there's no evidence for this. And in these large studies looking at um posture and pain, the way you sit doesn't really predict much at all. In fact, what we do know is that when you have pain, people tend to hold more tension in their body, be more guarded and more rigid in the way they move. And so often we think we lay traps for people by telling them, you know, brace your core, hold tense, you know, hold stiff, don't relax when you're bend, et cetera, which may actually be unhelpful.
0: So there, there is. I know the work of, say, Jordan Peterson and many others that talk about the, uh, the kind of serotonin and the uh, kind of significance factor of standing up straight. You know, chest out. Stand, you know, head up, head tall. And then there's the whole narrative around upper cross syndrome uh, and how that's some epidemic of our kind of techn- uh, technological uh-huh. life. Um, yeah, I, I do. I do feel that there is some. You know, there is a emotional change when I sit up straight and I'm holding myself tight or, or at least, um, yeah, I you know, think upright. there's a very, yeah, I think there's a difference between
1: holding, you know, we see, I see in my work, I see a lot of people who are highly distressed with pain and they're holding they They're not holding a relaxed, upright, confident, strong position. They'd be holding a tense, guarded, protective position. And I think there are different attitudes around posture that do demonstrate different emotions. And a lot of those um, postural experiments are very short-lived. They don't track people over a long period of time. They're they're experiments where you get people to hold two different postures and you look at something, Uh, but they don't track people over time. They don't look at people in pain and look at how they move. So we're not demonizing our posture, but we're just saying you can't tell people you can't, there is no evidence to tell people that you need to hold this posture all the time or the, or else you'll be damned with pain. There's no evidence for that. Um, uh, you know, that idea of what's healthy for the human spine is variability movement, movement and loading is really healthy for the body. Holding a body part rigid and tense is not healthy for the body. So, you know, to, to, to hold, um, a variety of postures, to me is um, very sensible. To adhere to a prescription around only being able to hold a single position doesn't sound, sounds uh, very limiting uh, in, in a lot of ways. And, and that's certainly what we see with people with pain. I've literally just rushed from the clinic um, and seen a lady who's um, in her 60s, um, who's got back and uh, lower back and mid back pain, has now stopped her ability to play golf um, It's limited her ability to pick up her kids. She's got osteoporosis. She's now stopped going to the gym and loading her back um, because of this pain. She feels this constant tension in her body. She sat bold upright. She holds her posture straight. She lifts with a straight back. She's reluctant to bend because she's become fearful, but she can't relax her body. And so, this constant guarding of her back has actually made her very, very painful and it's limited her capacity to function. Now, that's an example of someone who's developed a belief around I've got to protect my vulnerable spine by guarding it and holding it rigid, um, which is not freeing at all. And we would see that as a very unhelpful thing for her. We're actually at the end of the session, getting her to relax her body and engage with a variety of movements to be strong, to load, but to be soft, to support, you know, and she can't even, you know, for her to slump a posture, it's just to relax her posture. I think we demonize this idea of um, posture in terms of um, relaxed is good for the human body, active is good for the human body. But sometimes we don't give that, um, uh, that license to people mm. to have that capacity to vary what they do, because we put these rules around it, which aren't exactly evidence-based.
0: Okay. So th- that makes perfect sense, by the way. I mean, I, I do think we are, um, we do have an obsession um, around, you know, Proactivity, strength, ownership, and part of that is expressed through how we hold ourselves physically. Mm. And perhaps exactly. there's too much sympathetic demand on our lives, and not enough appreciation for the parasympathetic. I know that seems oh, to be a, a common absolutely. thread. And as you say, <laughs> like holding your posture right. and relaxing your muscles. Hey, relaxing typically means that you 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 change you you shift your shape. Now you could do exactly. that on the floor and do that in a exactly. quote unquote safe in uh, you know posture where there is no rounding but uh, often uh, when, when i'm working to, and i'm watching telly and i'm yeah. you know i'm just slumping into position i can't help but feel a little bit guilty that i should be really? sitting up more upright that just because uh, again uh, be, i've been conditioned be right <laughs> it's,
1: it's wonderful <laughs> i think you need to practice it so so that idea of feeling guilty or uh, that's something we hear a lot of um in the clinical setting and people saying oh, I'd never do that. You go, why wouldn't you do that? Well, that's bad for me, isn't it? Well, why do you think it's bad? Well, everyone knows it's bad. Like, yeah. where did that come from? Like, it's you know, you go to to um to developing cultures in around the world, they're bending over with straight legs in the fields, they're squatting with a round back. We haven't they haven't been um uh, infiltrated by the posture police to tell them that they're doing something terribly wrong. They're just getting on with living.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We've done something quite dreadful, I think, in the Western world of um, of creating these beliefs that are just not evidence-informed. Uh, to give people freedom to, you know, we see this with women, keep your legs together. You know, like, where did that come from? So cross your legs, but they cross them differently to a male and do it yeah. when you sit up straight. Like, we have these rules which we impose on people, and I think women particularly are way more um, exposed to those rules than guys
0: are and they're constraining and they're not evidence informed so i'd agree with you however if you look across you know look across the uk there'd be a lot of people you'd put in a quote-unquote bad posture camp so i wouldn't say everyone's living to these um so social ideals even though they are conditioned upon it's us not. to be this is the way we should be so h- help us understand that disconnect why is low back pain so prevalent uh i, yeah. I, I cited a, a u.s statistic that is you know second greatest cause of u.s disability yeah. i'd say yeah. it's fairly common in the U- uk as well why are one, we struggling so much with low back pain yeah i think
1: there are a number of reasons so um Just to clarify, lower back pain is the leading cause of disability in the world, and that's in the UK, it's in Australia, um, of any health problem. Neck pain's close behind it. Depression and anxiety are up with it. Um, Arthritis is coming close next to it. Chronic pain is one of the leading causes of disability. So um, we've done a lot of work looking at this issue around back pain. Why backs? Um, Why are backs susceptible? And um, the interesting thing, around back pain is that we've been involved in what's called epidemiological research. That means we track people from early in life and we look at their susceptibility to pain. Now, common belief is if you ask the population what they think about backs as they go, the that and, and there's a colleague of mine, um, Ben Darlow in New Zealand, who did a lovely study um, in New Zealand, is asking what they thought about back pain. And they they said, Backs are um, easy to harm and hard to heal. There's a common view that backs are vulnerable, um, that backs uh, need to be protected. They need special care. Um, but if we look at the, if the, the, the kind of journey of back pain in the world, we know that be, below the age of 10, it's very rare. At around the age of 14, about 45% of 14-year-olds, this is in West Australia, but this is in the UK and Scandinavia and the US and other parts of the world. Um, about 14% have already report 40% sorry, have reported back pain at the age of 14, 13, 14, about 10% of these kids are already reporting chronic back pain. That means pain on and off if, most days over a month at the age of 17. That pain increases, um, uh, to about, um, 20% of kids who are reporting pain that restricts their ability to go to school. Um, their ability to function, engage in activity, they're starting to seek treatment, taking medication for it. That increases to about thirty percent at the age of twenty-two, and that pretty much tracks through life at that point in time. So you go, well, what happens? Like this is, and if you look at the trajectory of other health conditions, um, like say asthma, it looks like it holds a very similar trajectory. So we've done a number of studies looking at who's vulnerable to pain. And I think the first thing to to highlight is back pain is really, really common. 90% of people will get back pain at some time in their life. But disability related to back pain is not so common. So that means I might have some back pain, but I always go to work. It doesn't stop me engaging activity. I can do the things that I love. What we know is there's a, a, a smaller, but significant group of people who don't get better from back pain. Now, You might say, well, what triggers the back pain? Well, back pain can be triggered from doing, you know, stuff like, for example, I might be engaging in, I might be sitting all day at work um, or have a sedentary job and I decide to have a really big day in the garden, bending and lifting all day. And I'm not conditioned to bend and lift because I've been sitting all week doing nothing. And the body's tissue or the structure of the body just may not be able to accommodate to that sudden increase in loading and so I might develop some strain of those structures and they might become sensitive. So that would be a very typical um, cause of back pain related to load and that would be just the same as if I was someone who was very sedentary and I decided to run a 10K run and I was very weak in my legs, i probably get sore feet or legs or tendons because I'm not conditioned to do the task. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Yep. But there are other groups we know in the population, and these are groups who are people who might be stressed. Um, And so we would say back pain's a bit like headache. So you can get a headache from banging your head, or you can get a headache because you're tired and run down and stressed. Um, And we know that that's a really common cause of backache, um, that we know that if you're under pressure, if you're tired, if you're stressed, um, uh, if you're sad... Uh, If you're not sleeping well, those things are a significant predictor of back pain, or you might call that a backache. Um, And that pain can be quite severe. So we know lots of back pain is not necessarily triggered by some biomechanical event. It could be triggered by significant stress or some change in your general health. And that's mediated through your immune system. So we know that um, when you're tired and stressed and run down or sad, that our body's tissues become more sensitive. So what might be not sensitive becomes sensitive, and often our muscles tense up. Uh, And so that could trigger a pain event, or if you combine both of those factors, they may be triggering a pain event. So back pain is really, really complicated because we know that you've got to tease out these factors when you start exploring what the what the causes are because on one hand, it could be some biomechanical loading that you're not used to or accustomed to on one hand. But on the other hand, it could be that you're really under heaps of stress and you're tired and you run down and you're vulnerable to doing something for, for pain to emerge with no injury. Does that make sense?
0: It does. I, I think you're referring to something Different, called so, uh, social psycho, right? Which is um, this this idea that I think we we all assume that pain is a direct result of some kind of tissue or mechanical damage, yeah. but there seems to be yeah. a whole a whole body so, of research and 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 community in the you know kind of pain management sphere that are acknowledging, yeah. hey, it's way beyond yeah. that. There's this whole kind of Absolutely. social and psycho aspect of it. Absolutely. As well
1: yeah so one of the a great example of this, for example, uh, which is uh, some recent research of our group, has shown that if you've got um, a child, so at the age, we know back pain doesn't begin until usually, until adolescence, as I said, but we know that if you grow up in a, um, in a household with parents where the functioning of the family is is not healthy, that's a stressed environment, you're a significant greater risk for developing back pain when you're in your 20s. So that's early life factors that influence the development of your nervous system and influence how your body and your nervous system res- responds to stress will influence your susceptibility of pain at a later time in your life. Now, that's not about your structure. That's about the way your nervous system is responding to stress. And so those fact- early life factors, we also know that you know if you're a kid who's prone to worry or um, uh, sadness at an early time in your life, that is also an increased predictor. Uh, we know that if you have significant life stress events in your early life, those things increase your risk of pain at a later life. So those things have got nothing to do with biomechanics. We know there are genetic factors um, that influence the way your nervous system handles stress um, that are predictors of, of, of back pain at later life. So there's actually a lot of evidence that, um, Uh, showing that um, a bunch of non-biomechanical or non-physical factors are risk factors for pain, um, uh, for back pain, uh, as well as um, biomechanical factors as well. And so you can't say it's just one or other. It's complicated. And that's why we look really carefully at the story of the person when we see them to say, tell me about your pain story. And usually these things become
0: clear from their pain story. Do you know what's fascinating, Peter, is that I, I have a, an old boss uh, that I hold dear to my heart. It, it was of great value in my life, um, only about half a dozen years older than me, um, holding no weight, uh, incredible mental attitude, very effective at work, um, a, pr- a true leader. But he'd been suffering on and off through, you know, at some point of his kind of early rugby career when he was, you know, at school, uh, with back pain, uh, debil- debilitating back pain that would just episodically just ruin him for periods of time. Yeah, and he, uh, he's got he's got money, he's educated, uh, he's global. You know, he's had global jobs, and he has sought um, support. Um, across the world and a lot in Boston when he um, moved over there for a couple of years. Saw some really mm. great specialists, they've done a variety of things to him. Some he sweared by more than others in terms of controlling or managing his issues. And he said it, it never went away though. It was always a, a kind of pain management thing versus a kind of mm. pain remission issue for yep. him. And then... <laughs> He spoke to some physician who recommended this book by John E. Sano. I've not read it myself. Yeah. I've got it on my list. Yeah, I Mind, have. body, prescription. Yeah. Yeah. And he yeah. then went on to, and this sounds wacky. <laughs> He's going to say, like you've got to read this book. He said, it's all about yeah. um, understanding the emotion and the psychology mm. that's holding the mm. pain in within your body. Yeah. And actually, this isn't just a matter of your body protecting itself. It's like emotionally you're holding on to this pain. Yeah. And he said, I went through this journey yeah. of understanding this at a deeper level. Yeah. He that I feel like I'm yeah. in remission. I don't feel like I've got this issue anymore. I've let go of it. I've understood yeah. it. And I'm like, yeah. come on. Yep. Come on. This sounds ridiculous. Talk to me a bit about it. No way. No way is that ridiculous. So
1: there's really good evidence now around um, pain persistence. So if you look at, there's some very good brain imaging research that's come out of the States that's looked at, um, uh, um, what changes in your nervous system when pain becomes persistent. So what we know about persistent pain and that, so an example of this would be, so let's say you, you develop back pain tomorrow and it's acute. The majority of people with acute back pain will recover about 30% don't not recovering are things like their mood, their worry, their sleep, um, their beliefs, um, their levels of fear or anxiety, uh, their previous history of pain, their previous history of emotional stress, etc. Those things are highly predictive of whether the person gets better or not. So, what, and this is if you understand the biology, the neurobiology of pain, that we have different parts of the nervous system that you know, relay information. So, you know, we're chatting and now we we're using our cognitive aspects of our brain thoughts, uh, and, and, um, and concepts, but we've got these regions of our brain that process emotion and those emotional centers, um, are triggered by both physical could be pain, which is, could create emotional distress, but it also could be psychological distress. And that processing in, in that emotional aspect of your brain is strongly linked to um, other processes in the body which influence sensitivity in the nervous system, which can target regions of the body like the neck and the back, uh, and so it's it's there is growing evidence to show that this um uh, this kind of connectivity around these emotional aspects in the brain around the amygdala, for example, which process fear um like mood emotion. Uh, memories very much around memory so negative um, or painful emotional memories can interplay with other aspects of the nervous system which can create sensitivity around body structures
0: it's really hard to get your head around isn't it because we're, we're not conditioned to think that you know, uh, pain is look, anything have, more than just you know yeah, i've hurt myself
1: have you ever had a headache
0: uh, yeah many a times and, yeah, and, like, and sometimes just because i've stopped taking caffeine yeah, but tell me times that you've had a headache. What what triggers a headache for you? Um, I probably haven't spent enough time thinking about it. I know if I stop taking caffeine for a day or two, that definitely causes a okay. headache. Okay. So it could be and chemical. When I'm thinking too much, that causes a headache. Okay. Um, so when, a cold- and when um, I'm usually up for too long, and yeah, it's usually up for too long and thinking too long, causes okay. a headache. And so then when comes- I'm ill. So your health, your thoughts...
1: Your um, maybe you're, um, up too long. You may not getting enough sleep or putting your body, your physiology, physiology under some kind of stress could trigger a headache. That common, that common thing. So we know that, um, headaches really common, but we know that the two things that are two biggest predictors of headache as stress and not sleeping enough. Um, and that, if that influences your immune system, which can trigger pain around your head, um, so, they're really common at human experiences that people, when they reflect on them, go, Well, did you think you, you know, when you came off caffeine, did you damage your head? Mm-hmm. No, it's chemical. So, when you <laughs> had a big day and you weren't getting much sleep, did you think you damaged your head? No, it's that's about your physiology. So, we kind of get it for the head, but for some reason, we don't get it for the back. Yeah, so true. it's another body part. <laughs> like, but you, you can also get a headache from coming off your bike and banging your head. And I've had that kind of headache as well. And both are very painful. <laughs> They're both different mechanisms, that's all.
0: And most people don't deal with con- concussive issues. You know, most people are dealing with headaches because of the things I've just described. Exactly. Another exactly. another anecdote. So my, my wife's um, mother, she got um, some kind of fusion surgery or some disc surgery yeah. I think she had to remove one of her discs I'm not entirely sure yeah. I could be wrong but she definitely done some, some kind of fairly invasive yeah. surgery early yeah. in her life because she was, yeah. she was cleaning at one point she was loading her back perhaps in an inappropriate way dealing with lots of pain and the yeah. knee jerk reaction the alarmist nature was hey you've got degenerative issues with your back you yeah. have to deal yeah. with that through invasive yeah. surgery and then huh. for 20 plus years she's been living a limited life of assuming yeah. never to impose uh, impose any form of strain yeah. loading on her back yeah. to the point that she would it's a disaster she would not she wouldn't you know she put on yeah. weight she wouldn't you yeah. know, train in yeah. any capacity yeah. and then over the last 12 months we've got her in the gym deadlifting squatting moving yeah, awesome. and she was surprised with just yeah. how capable she yeah. was when she thought she yeah. was debilitated for the rest of her life. Yeah. Talk to me about our alarmist nature, yeah. about de- uh, degenerative it's, back it's awful. disc issues. It's awful. Well, I think we have an alarmist nature
1: about back pain. And then we couple that with the fact that we go and take scans because we think, oh, back pain, something's damaged. Oh, I need to scan it because we don't understand back pain. And so the problem with scans is that... Um, We know that at the age of 21, about 45% of 21-year-olds already have a degenerate. It shouldn't even be called a degenerate spine. What's happened with MRI scans are very sensitive to tissue change and water content to tissue. And so you start seeing these changes in structure, which are a normal process of aging, uh, which we then label as degenerative. Now, the word degenerative has got all these negative connotations. It's like I'm degenerating. I'm falling people think I'm falling apart. I've got an old person's spine and we're giving these people these labels at a very young age. Now that's, that's mislabeling something that's normal. So we know that, um, at the age of uh, 40, for example, um, between 40 and 50, about 80% of people have disc degeneration. They have, 30% Bulges. 30% or 60% of people have disc bulges They're normal findings on a scan. But the problem is if you happen to have back pain and you get a scan, you get labeled with this word that has all these really scary connotations. And what then people start thinking is God, this is like a car tire. If I'm going to live the next X number of years, I better preserve this car tire mm-hmm. by not driving it and loading it as much. Right. And so they start thinking, I've got to preserve this and preserving, you know, a structure, we have this kind of very structural, uh, biomechanical view of the body that somehow, um, we, we're better, we have to stop doing stuff. We better not load the back because it might wear it out. We're better not bend and lift in a normal way. We've got to protect it by holding our posture all the time. And that then leads to all these downstream negative consequences of losing function, losing, um, you know, general health stuff, like you say, putting on weight um losing muscle mass affects our bone density it affects you know our balance it increases risk for all health more you know mortality it's absolute disaster and this is really well documented in the literature that these messages telling people that you know their backs are fragile and they need to protect them and scanning them and telling them they're degenerative has can have a really catastrophic effect on someone's health trajectory and that's not just pain it's general health mental health um well, it's so restrictive uh, and, and isn't and it physical health it's so restrictive and it's wrong. mentally
0: because people it's, make yeah, like it's my, terrible like my wife's yep. mother she just yes. she has restricted wrong. her life for, for at least yep. half of it yep. because she's been yep. labeled as someone with back pain yep absolutely and
1: it's wrong and i think this idea this understanding that you know we've got to shift our thinking around backs as like a a biomechanical structure that is vulnerable to load and therefore we need to protect it. Just thinking that it's much more like a garden. It's organic. So you are going to tend it. You've got to care for it. You've got to, you know, and that, that means you've got to care for your general health. If you want to care for your back, that means you get good sleep, you get regular activity. You have a healthy diet. You give your body a range of um, movements. You keep yourself strong and fit that you engage in a variety of things and that's about caring for your health so when we start seeing someone's general health deteriorated they become greater risk of pain um and that's mediated through all these when our health is compromised
0: yeah yeah okay um talk to me about loading no no talk to me about the utility of surgery so I think as we as we span yeah. across the last 50 years, there's been lots of some form yeah. of invasive surgery on yeah. spine and discs and so yeah. forth. Yeah. Do, do you want to talk about what the most common surgeries are yeah. and whether there's utility in yeah. them generally?
1: Yeah, so um, there's been a massive increase in spinal surgery um, and there are two 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 kind of components to that. So um, one of the common forms of surgery is what would be called a discectomy or a microdiscectomy. So this would be in someone who has a disc prolapse. So this is um, a piece of disc material that may be compressing a nerve um, as it exits through a little um, aperture in the spine. And now that can cause, that can trigger both what's called sciatica, which is nerve pain, that's pain down the leg. Mm. Uh, and, and if there is compression on the nerve, it's a bit like putting a tourniquet on your arm, you can lose sensation and power in, in the leg as well. Now, if in the majority of cases, these disc protrusions or disc prolapses nat- naturally resolve on their own. So the majority get better with no intervention at all. There's a small group of people, and, and in fact, I saw a, a a client just very recently who presented to me where she lost sensation in her saddle area. So in a perineal area, she was able to control her bladder because it affected some of the nerves that control the bladder and the and the region of the perineum. Now that's a much more serious, they're really, really, really rare. It's not very common. Uh, a lot of times people are operated on based on the finding of the scan, not necessarily their clinical finding. Um, and so for example, we know that uh, I saw a chat recently He had um, pain in his back radiating down his leg, went to a surgeon, he said, you need to have a discectomy. He didn't, he wasn't very comfortable because the surgeon didn't really explain what was going on. He went home, checked out through the internet that most of these things naturally recover on their own, got a second opinion. Seven weeks weeks later, his pain is completely resolved and he's back doing all the things he needs. Now, he never had surgery and that's the most common pathway Uh, as resolution of that kind of problem. But very often people are in pain and they're distressed and they get told you need to have an operation. They're not told, look, there are risks that come with this operation. The body's really, really clever. It it usually resolves these things on their own. We can give you some medication to give you some pain relief. We're gonna get you moving and get you active because it will help with your recovery um, and we'll monitor that. Um, as long as these other factors, like you're not losing control of your bowel and bladder, um, um, uh, are not part of your story. So that's probably, you know, that, that's a, an important differentiation. The other um, common cause of, oh not cause, the other common reason that's uh, uh, really massively increased recently is, is um, surgery for back pain. Um, so that other one's more for leg pain, that's when you've got a nerve that's involved. For back pain, this is more um, surgery like a disc replacement or a fusion. Mm. So this is around this view that your pain is caused by your degenerate discs, so we will either fuse the disc together or we'll put a little um, a cup between the discs um, as a disc replacement. Now, that's increasing massively uh but the long term outcomes of the studies that look at um lumbar surgery uh, lumbar fusion or um or disc replacements show that um the outcomes are no no better than um non surgical approaches good non surgical care that involves addressing things like movement and active, just the stuff that you've done with your mother in law um and and the risks that come with those big surgical operations is significant. The other big issue that we know that's a common thing now in, in the UK and in and, and our parts of the world is this opioid epidemic, is that we're giving people these really um, uh, risky drugs that are very, very poor, bad for their health. And those drugs, while can be potent in the short term, actually increased the sensitivity of the nervous system in the long term and they're linked to all kinds of other health problems. So and that's commonly prescribed around lumbar surgery. So there is some evidence that if you go and have these big surgeries for the spine, you could end up becoming dependent on these other medication as well um, as a scalar process. So there's a big industry out there promoting um, frightening people and promoting surgery as the only option for managing back pain. And very rarely do they get really high value non-surgical care that engages them with um, building confidence back in their body. Just the things you said that your mom, mother-in-law did uh, of getting getting confidence to load and bend and use that body part and lose weight and get healthy in themselves.
0: How, how as a percentage, I know this is, pure speculation and conjecture, but how, as a percentage of surgeries that are performed globally, how many of them do you think are actually warranted? (laughs) Um,
1: Oh, that would be tough to say, but um, it's interesting. If you look at the um, Australian care environment, if you look at the public health system, so that'd be like your NHS, the, the amount of spinal surgery hasn't increased at all in the last 15 years, 20 years. Um, but if you look at the private health system, there's been an exponential increase in the amount of surgery that's been done. Now what that would suggest is that the surgery that's been conducted in the public system is probably most likely evidence-based and there are clear guidelines for doing surgery. In fact, the nice guidelines, which were, um, you know, you're probably familiar with Mm -hmm. in the UK, which are the guidelines back pain. Suggest that back um, uh, spinal surgery, as, as a fusion or disreplacement, is not um, is not advised in the guidelines. It, now they've taken it off the guidelines. Wow. Um, if you have an unstable fracture, if you've got a spinal fracture from a trauma, that you might need a fusion. Um, in that case, that's a different. That's a trauma. Um, uh, if you've got, you know, as I said, uh, compression of a nerve where you can't pee and stuff, that's an evidence-based intervention is to do that. But the majority of spinal fusions that are done um, are not uh, guidelines-based, and very often those people don't get high-value care as an alternative before they go through into the other into the other group. So what that would suggest that there is an industry that's pushing, that's that's that. It's an industry-driven health procedure. It's not an evidence-based health procedure.
0: Mm. So you would again, not trying to put words in your mouth, you would say that a lot of a lot. back surgery is avoid <laughs> is avoidable.
1: Uh, look, it depends on the case. So as I said to you, if you don't have, if if you don't have, um you know, an unstable fracture from a trauma, like a motor vehicle trauma, if you don't have a loss of, um, progressive loss of power um, from a compressed nerve that's affecting your bladder control, et cetera, um, what, then why would you have surgery? Why would you, given that the evidence doesn't support it's better than non-surgical care? Um, And that would be the conversation that I would have with people that I would see. So where you have a comp- compression of a nerve that's affecting the your power and sensation and your reflexes or your ability to pee, um, uh, then that that's that that's like and that's called a decompression surgery. It's taking the pressure off the nerve. That's evidence based. Um, if you've got an unstable fracture, that's evidence based because you're stabilising an unstable structure. But for degenerative discs, the the evidence is not good for um, the justification to go ahead with those procedures.
0: That's crazy. <laughs> it's yep. crazy because and that's, not, absolutely that's crazy. not what we hear. That's not what we hear. And as you say, no, the opioid no. epidemic, especially related back pain, is, is yeah. a big, it's big huge. deal. huge. I, I know huge. many people on crazily strong yep. meds for, for their back pain.
1: Um, you know the other thing they're not told about it. that is that opioids actually suppress your own pain inhibitory systems. So actually, it ends up creating your nervous system. It creates more pain um, when you're on that when you're on them for a long period of time, and that that's that's well documented now. So the other thing that's emerged around opioids, if you look at someone's general health, their mental health, their physical health, their general health is consistently worse on those medications. So actually, we're hurting people and that doesn't we're doing that doesn't up.
0: surprise you really when you think about you know the chronic no. use no. of uh medication to you know run yeah. and operate it yeah. just doesn't make sense intuitively no. that's probably a good thing long term um, No, and
1: i think a lot, a lot of people get very angry when you say things like this because they like going, they feel like we're um judging you know we don't we're not yeah judging them we're not listening to them and and i think it's a failure in our health system because we haven't given people really good alternatives you know when people are suffering and they're distressed because of pain, we, we want to do something for them. But I think we have to be really honest and say, look, there are different pathways for managing pain, and these pathways come with great risk. Um, and so we need to be clear about what those risks are. These pathways are very safe. They're very effective, but they demand a partnership with you and me. So, because I think we have this view that we we live in a quick fix society, Mm. and we offer, we want, they want it. But we have to be honest. It's like you can't. Where where did the tablet come that fixed you know depression? We know that antidepressants can have an effect, but we haven't fixed depression in society. We've got anxiety and, and depression rates increasing in society. We've got more and more people on these medications like in the same with back pain the more money we're spent on drugs and injections and surgery the disability is actually getting worse as a yeah. society so we're clearly doing something really not right and and when you start questioning this people get really pissed off and they start you know i, I get a lot of very negative um um uh, you know feedback on these kinds of comments and it and i deeply care for the people i work with Um, But we just haven't told people the, the, the true story about pain to say, look, in some cases it is about structure, but in other cases it's not. And Our job is to differentiate between the two. Surgery can be really helpful and important in a small group of people, but it's not the answer for a lot of people. And so we would say that you know, giving people a good understanding and coaching them to um, engage with living and movement and activity and safety of loading and good sleep and sensible diet, that's for everybody, right? There's a small group who may require surgery, but that's for a very small group. What we're doing at the moment is we're treating a lot of people with not good care, and we're missing out on treating people with what we call high-value care, that's care that's not risky, um, and that can be very effective. We're not funding it as health systems, and we're not supporting people to and have those on, honest
0: conversations with them. And I do think, though, the, you know, the the issue is deeper than you know industry profit or you know industry motivation, because ultimately, what does no, the, it's what, lots of factors. What, what does industry do? They respond to the market. And what does the market yes, want? People want quick yeah. fixes. They want yeah, immediate really. resolution. Take yeah. this pill. Yep. Do this one thing, yep. and then I'm resolved Absolutely. of my ailments. Yep. But the reality Absolutely. is, Peter, that it's across <laughs> every, anything and everything I've spoken about, yeah. across, over the hundreds of podcasts I've had, yeah. the quick fix is never the solution. It's always the no, things exactly. you've just said, which is yeah. taking due care and attention of your body yeah. and it, taking a right, yeah. uh, you know, long-term habits around yeah. nutrition, yeah. Yeah. sleep, Absolutely. recovery, exercise. It's yeah. always the same
1: guidance. And, and social stuff as well is really important, you know healthy relationships in, in, in work and at home are also really important things that are quite predictive we call these social determinants are quite predictive of um of uh, outcomes for people with pain and all health as well so it's a it's it's a big picture view on health uh, that we 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 that is evidence based but it's really hard for people to stomach that when they just, you know, the pain is distressing. They want it to be taken away. Yeah.
0: Um, and, and unfortunately… And the pain is real, right? We're, we're, not, oh, we're not saying it's just some fictitious yeah. look, thing, right? It's there look, and people I've are had, living with it. I've
1: had a lot of back pain. In, yeah, spot on. I've had a lot of back pain in my life. I've had back pain from a fracture coming off a mountain bike and landing across a log. It was intense back pain. Um, and it was caused by injury. I've also had back pain that wasn't caused by injury, that was also very intense. I'm lucky that I understand, I understood the processes. Um, The way I managed managed my fracture was to let it heal. Um, The way I managed my other pain emergence was to understand that I needed more sleep and I needed to get more activity and I needed to take better care for my general health. Um, And that's the conversation that we have with the people we see. To say, look, there are different kinds of pain there's pain from tissue injury, but the story, as you will know, there's, t- there's pain from structure, but there's also pain from all these other things that we've talked about. And so having a, a very um, honest and, um, and a qualified health practitioner can help tease out those different factors for the individual to kind of map a plan um, that is
0: evidence-informed and that is not risky. So I would love for us, Peter, but, um, we're going to, we will close on maybe some practical guidance for life and practical guidance for managing, uh, current back pain. But before we get to that, I just wanted to navigate through this idea of loading the back and lifting with a straight yeah. back and just some, some context. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've listened to Mark, yeah. Mark Rippeter. I'm not sure if you're aware of him. He's a, he's a senior lifter, starting strength, uh, you know, pa- previous power lifter. Um, he, he coaches a lot of people through really just regaining functional strength uh, through the kind of compound lifts, and one of his kind of big uh, kind of discussions is around back pain. He acknowledges how mm. prevalent it is, and he's also very counterculture. His view is, "Hey, you've got to load the back. You've got to load the back to make it um, healthy and functional." Yep. And he talks about loading the that. back under significant, you know, tensile and. Um, uh, uh, sorry, compressive and shear strength. Yep. And he said that that yep. is not a problem. He then goes on to say that, you know, we're hominids. We stand upright. As a result, our backs are going to quote unquote degenerate just through the nature of us loading our spine in a way yeah, which I, previously I we, we would have been on all I don't fours. go with that bit. Okay, well, I, anyway. <laughs> I right, go hit, with the first bit. <laughs> so, so talk to us a little bit about loading your back yeah. and whether it's good yeah. or bad for you and then this yeah, whole idea of straight back lifting. Yeah, okay. So there are two
1: different thoughts. Um, so you, you, you had me with you right up until that <laughs> <Dominic> like, <is. laughs> upright thing because that's kind of contradictory. You're saying that it's good for your back, but actually loading your back causes degeneration. That's contradictory to me. It's like loading the back is good for your health. Um, so what we know is if you look at this a scan of your back, and uh, you look at what predicts what your MRI looks like. It's Your genetic factors are the strongest predictor. Um, next biggest predictor is if you're carrying too much belly fat around your waist. Um, the next biggest predictor is your age. How much you load your back is not a great predictor. In fact, it goes the opposite to what people think. So there was a lovely study that was conducted, uh, um, published a couple of years ago, that looked at people who never ran middle distance and long distance runners. And they looked at how strong the structures around the, like the disc structures were. And the long distance runners had the strongest disc structures. The people who didn't do any running had the weakest disc structures. So that's around the density of the structure of the back. So what we know, you look at a tennis player, which is the bigger arm? Which is the stronger muscles? Which are the bones that are thicker? It's the racket arm. If you look at someone who engages in graduated loading of their back, the bones are stronger, the ligaments are stronger, the muscles are stronger. And that's based on the fact that you gradually load that those structures. So it takes time for the body to adapt to load. So what you can't do is take someone who's been sedentary and throw them in the gym and get them to lift 100Ks. You have to find the point of tolerance and you gradually load them up over time. So that's So what we know is load is really, really good. It's good for your bone health, your muscle strength, um, it's good for your mental health loading is good. <laughs> it's really good for you. Um, it will make your body, your back stronger and more resilient to load. So we get better at the thing we practice basically. Now this issue around straight back, we just, um, um, our group just published the paper looking at all the evidence in the world at the moment of the risk of lifting with a round or a flex back. And we couldn't find a single study to support that there was a risk with it. Now we've demonized lifting to say, my God, if you're going to lift, you've got to hold this. Otherwise you're going to, you know, damage your discs. Well, we, we haven't seen, there's no evidence for that at all. So there is an absence of good evidence at the moment around that. Um, what we do know though, is that, um, uh, you know, the risk to, to lifting, uh, is more around you're not, um, you're not trained or conditioned to the task. We also know that people who engage in a repeated lifting task, if they're tired and fatigued and run down, uh, are at greater risk. And that fits with those other factors that we talked about before around your general health. Um, We would say to people that, um, uh, and, and we often hear this with manual workers, they go, look, we get given this ergonomic advice. It's ridiculous. There's no way in my job as a plumber when I've got to bend down and twist in these awkward positions, I can do that in the way I've been taught. It's mm-hmm. not possible. Um, so, we're asking people to do one thing, and that's different in a controlled environment like a gym. But if you look at people engaged in manual work, they often laugh at this advice because they're going, That's a joke. It's not possible in my job. Um, and so, we're asking people to do something they just can't physically do that's number number two. So one, number one, there's no evidence. Number two, if you look at all the studies that have told people how to lift, well, hasn't reduced back pain at all. Um, number three, a lot of people can't even do it because it doesn't, it's not realistic in their job environment. And number four is, um, you know, it's healthy. It's important for the body to develop, um, resilience in a range of postures, not just a posture. So if all you do is teach yourself to to take load when you're back straight, what do you do when you get your golf clubs out of the boot of the car or you're picking up something heavy from the boot of the car or what does a mum do when they pick their kid out of a baby seat at the back of the car because there's no way they can do that. So we're, we're, we're actually leaving people quite vulnerable um, to when they have to bend their back and load it. Mm. And so we would say to people, we need to get you – confident and accustomed to loading your back in a variety of ways to make you resilient in a variety of things in your life. And and that's just common sense. It's like you don't teach football players just to run in straight lines. You teach them to cut, sidestep, you know, suddenly load, jump, land. You teach them to get a variety of control through their knee and their lower limb in the same way we would do the same thing for the back. So we work with groups like um um, uh, like dancers, uh, you know, different forms of athlete, throwers, et cetera. They tell a rower they can't bend their back. It's ridiculous. Of course they bend <laughs> their back repetitively under load. Yeah. That's the nature of their job. Tell a cyclist, they can't load their back when they're cycling. You look at all of them in the tour de France, they've all got round backs because they're more aerodynamic and they get better power ratios through their lower limbs. So we've created a really crazy narrative that is just doesn't make
0: sense in my mind i I hear you and then you've you've made a very strong case that you know functionally there's many vocations or activities where a straight back is just non-conducive to optimal performance or comfort but yeah but talk to me about so those those big compound gym lifts squat and deadlifts let's look at a deadlift right if you look at you know the deadlift guidance across you know most of the strength and conditioning in, in industry some will we counter this, mm-hmm. but the majority will say, you know, for for protecting your back and ensuring you don't have herniated discs and cause a whole heap of problems, one, you want to brace, two, one, you engage your lats, and three, you want to maintain a, a level of straight back, both the lumbar, not over flexing and uh, not rounding your upper back too much. You really want to re- maintain a relatively straight torso as you lift from the floor to protect your your discs is uh, one is that true and two how much latitude is there because i can imagine some lifting techniques which would be awful for your back uh well we say that but
1: actually the human spine it's just the human body is amazing what it could accommodate to if you look at you know you go and go and watch Cirque du Soleil you look at what those people do with their bodies i mean they break every rule in the book every rule Mm. around the way they load and move their bodies. They're amazing athletes. They're not holding their bodies in one position and doing stuff. They're doing all kinds of stuff. Um, And part of that, some of that involves heavy lifting. Um, Look, I'll I'll preface this by saying, if you look at the literature at the moment around risk, there's not a single study study that has, has even looked at people and their risk of back pain over 12 kilograms not a single study. Wow. So actually we don't know because there's no research out there. And part of the reason for that is because, um, it's very hard to do studies where you're loading people up with 200 kilograms cause you can't get it through ethics. Uh, that's number one, number two. So, but the other thing is the studies that have looked at these studies do flex their backs. They do. You can't do a deadlift without flexing your back. So we say this, we say these things, and we advise people to do these things. But in reality, people do bend their backs when they carry huge loads. And if you look at the the strongest people in the world doing the deadlift, they do flex their backs. Um, so, you know, we and say one thing, but we actually do stone. something completely different. Exactly. Yeah, when- and then they do something different, and we go, oh, yeah, that's good. Because actually, we probably aren't very good at eyeballing what the body's doing.
0: But do you ever look at some, some technique of lifting and go, oh, that, that just looks like as no. if that's an accident waiting to happen?
1: No. I look at people and say, you're an accident waiting to happen okay. when you're lifting because you're completely deconditioned. You're in no condition to lift a load that you're lifting. That's, to me, an accident waiting to happen. So that's no different than me saying to someone who's been sitting on their, you know, well, not being active to go and run a half marathon next weekend don't do it. You might get a stress fracture because the body isn't, you haven't trained it to run. So, you know, we, we just hold these strong beliefs that are not well informed, I think. And, you know, if you look at different, there are different views around the heavy lifting. Again, this is not my expertise, but we have looked into the literature, um, to say straight leg back lifting, no worries, go for it. Um, but then you've seen people do the Jefferson curl, which is straight leg mm. bent lifting and people advocate that and they go, it's wonderful. It's really helped my back, you know, and then you've got people who do a deadlift with a variety of ways. And then you look at the people who are really, really, really good at it and they bend their back when they lift. It's so so you'd think the people who are the best would be the ones who'd be doing it the
0: straightest. With They're you not know, just and the they genetic shoot. freaks. They're, you know, they've kind of learned a behavior well, that's, you know, productive and Exactly.
1: Yeah. They've learned to be efficient. And if actually you look at the geometry geometry of the muscles of the spine, they're more efficient when the back is slightly flexed than when your back
0: is straight. They're more mm-hmm. efficient to lift load. So interesting. Well, I appreciate I appreciate the kind of the, the again the counter position on that because I think we do need to hear it. Let's transition into closing on on, you know, therapeutic practices and general guidance. And maybe maybe a segue into that is my um my experience of tweaking my back. So I've tweaked my back yeah. several times. I I lift, I'm in the gym a lot. Um, I don't always, I'm not always dialed in. So sometimes I may even push my body too far or not do things with proper yeah. technique. And in those instances, I've caused myself a, a spot of bother. where, you know, yeah. I, a couple of times I've been crippled for a few days. Other times it's just been irritating. Now I've got a few things I go to, to try and help me out of that situation. Mm. Um, and one of the things have been hot cold kind of compressive a little bit of compressive force on my back and and just maybe some work on the floor and uh, yeah. maybe some work on my psoas and some some release work to try yeah. and release some of the tension i don't know whether they're uh, yeah. evidence-based but over yeah. time they seem to support my recovery yeah. what's your yeah. view on those techniques such as ice you know hot cold yeah, yeah. pressure on, on the, so, the low back yeah
1: <laughs> so this is not great evidence but um <laughs> So one of the things that <laughs> one of the things we know about back pain, if you for the as I said, the majority of people who tweak their back or develop will recover on their own, pretty much irrespective of what they do. What we know will delay their recovery if they protect their back too much and rest it too much. So engaging with movement and activity, the things you're talking about of like gently getting movement back into your body, learning to relax. So heat can be helpful to help you relax your muscles, um, but that's what it's doing. Um, you know, the likes of ice, well, there's no way in hell. If you have strained a deep structure in the back, there's no way in hell that ice is going to penetrate. And actually the evidence now around icing would suggest that that's probably just local analgesic and mm. there's no therapeutic benefit at all for icing the body part. It might just give you some pain relief, but that's pretty much it because it numbs your, your local tissue. Um, uh, but the most important thing uh, for people with an episode of back pain is to reassure them that engaging with early movement, normal early movement is really important. Um, and, um, so I saw a lady last week who came in highly distressed with acute back pain, um, was, you know, in literally in tears. She came in very guarded, uh, and I basically just got it and she was, you know, highly distressed. Um, ten out of ten pain and I just got her to relax and I got her to start to to breathe, to let go, reduce her tension, start to move, facilitated her movement, and then she got up and was able to, you know, walk out. Uh, within two days I could get her um back into bending and lifting and jogging and doing a whole bunch of stuff. Now wow. within three days of I an mean, acute, severe acute episode of back pain, through good information and reassurance and relaxation and reactivation and gentle repeated movement, she could recover very quickly. Now she'd gone to bed and she'd started reinforce protecting her body and guarding it and feeling distressed. There are things that slow the process of recovery down. And we know this now for any you know any strain of the body, if you strain a calf or you strain a, 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 an ankle, engaging with early activity and movement is really, really good because it increases your chance, of the speed of recovery. So I think they are the key things that we in, encourage people to understand, that actually backs are really, really tough structures. They're really cool. They, they love variety. They, um, you know, they don't like being overstressed when you're stressed. They don't like being loaded up too quickly be, when, before they have chance to adapt. Um, uh, but if you do develop back pain, be reassured. There's a really high chance of recovery. Engage with movement. Relax your body, and it's really hard to do that when you're in pain. But you've got to persist, knowing that it's not doing you harm. And I think that's the key thing: is that um, pain, pain might be, you know, back pain might be distressing, um, and it's painful, and I've had it. But actually, engaging with movement is the key for quick recovery. As long as your movement is relaxed and normalised, and not highly guarded and protected.
0: Would you not say that the kind of protective rigidity that that comes from like an episode of back pain is your body trying to protect um, and prevent movement in a, in at a point where it's highly inflamed? Yeah. I mean, is that do you not want no, to allow no. some rigidity and let the no. body do its thing or not? No, no. <laughs> so the only thing we protect is a broken bone.
1: So okay. if you know if you got a ruptured structure or you got a prolapsed disc or something, you know, some significant pathology, yeah, of course. That's your body going in protective mode. But for a lot of people, the body, it's just the reflex in the system. And the, the body doesn't really judge that too well because um, we know that relaxing and moving, you've said it yourself, relaxing and moving got, gets you better quickly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, those protective mechanisms, the body, the brain doesn't really differentiate pain from a headache. Uh, so pain from stress, then pain from injury, mm. damage. Doesn't really differentiate that well. It so just goes, oh shit, pain. It just guards it, and that's our job as health practitioners to go, ah, that. And this is what I did with this lady. I'm going, that's that pain's not because you're damaged. That pain's linked to a whole bunch of other factors that were happening in her life that were really, really stressful. And she wasn't sleeping. And then she did the same thing she's done every day and got this acute back pain, and her back just locked up, and she freaked out. That wasn't ever about tissue damage. That. Actors that were going in her life. And because I knew her, I knew very quickly to relax to with movement and get her confident to get going because activity is really important for her health.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. But
1: I if someone it's... did have a fracture, someone did have a fracture, I would be going, mate, you like, I saw a guy yesterday, had a fracture. I said, six weeks. But what you do, carry on. Your body will tell you what it wants and what it doesn't want still engage with movement, but just back off heavy loading at the moment um, because that, that allows your body to heal. The body will tell you in that situation because bone injuries, um, you don't want to completely arrest them, but you don't want to uh, overload them because it doesn't allow the tissue to heal. Mm. You need a little bit of stress for healing.
0: Okay. This has been fantastic, Peter, really has. Can we close on um, your kind of, as as you see a lot of people um, obviously, you deal with you know gui- guiding them through the acute issues that they may be having, but then you leave them with some practical guidance, like some general Absolutely. best practices as it relates to yeah. either co- either physical movement or engaging with life to prevent further episodes. What are those? And I know they're going to be quite holistic and and yeah, vain, yeah, yeah. But what are they?
1: Yep. Yeah. So I say to people usually when I discharge them from care, as I would say, manage your sleep maintain regular physical activity, vary your movements so preserve your movement, um, care for your general health, um, uh, you know, keep yourself social. So these are all things about your general health that are really important in terms of dose of physical activity, you know, half an hour, like at least 150 minutes a week, ideally some moderate a combination of, um, uh, of moderate cardio, moderate to high levels of cardiovascular, with a mix of um, strength and conditioning in with that, it would be an ideal combination of stuff. But movement and activity, your foundation on which you build your life on, because what often people do is they're under pressure and they and they, um, you know, they care for everything else apart from their own health and physical activity is often the first thing that goes. It is so protective for all health. Um, and it's like a drug and we have to see it like we self care by administering ourselves with those things that we know are so protective. So we know that engaging in regular physical activity is protective of future episodes of pain, mm-hmm. uh, but also care for your mental health. And that involves good sleep, regular activity, social engagement, et cetera, as well. So when we look at prevention, it's very much around the whole health of a person it's not so much about are uh, you sitting straight is your core strong because
0: that's not where the evidence is but then when you do um i guess um supplement that discussion with lifting and posture where where mm. where do you take them with that we've kind of so we've, we've kind of people. said it already but yeah. is, is there so any I'd guidance people, on posture
1: yeah. So this lady today, I'd say, you know, your back is really, really sore when you arch it. So just learn to relax it a little bit more. So, learn, learn, so we would never say, yeah, mustn't sit straight. But we'd say, hey, give your back some variety, variability. So if it's really painful to sit slumped, then vary it out of slump. And if it's really painful to sit straight, then relax a little bit and mm. give it some other alternatives. If you're engaged in lifting, it depends on what your job is. So if you're a plumber, if you're digging ditches, you need to be bloody strong to bend and twist and to load your back. Um, if you want to just work out in the gym, then you know let's work on what your goals are. If you're a dancer, you're going to have to be really strong at backward bending. If you're a pole vaulter, you're going to be really powerful to drive your body forward over a pole. It comes down to task. And so we're really big on goal-orientated training to say, what, what are your goals? Let, let's develop a program that targets the things that you love because the things you love are the things you're going to keep doing in your life. And, and activity is for life. So if we can give you the confidence to do those things, that's good for you.
0: Keep your goal your goal, right? Versus yep. dog, just dogmatically following the regime. I love that. Yep. I love that. Yep. All righty, Peter. Um, two questions then. Where can people find you, your work, and just generally oh, engage okay. with you? And then secondly, yeah. are there supplemental resources that kind of yeah. allow people to read Great further question. into this?
1: Yeah. Yep. So we, um, we have, um, well, two, two websites. Pain Health is, a, 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 is funded by the health department in Western Australia. It's a wonderful resource for, um, for the population to give them a much evidence-based information about back pain and general pain. There's another uh, website called pain under ed short for Pain Education. And that's a website that we're, that I'm involved in that has a lot of great patient stories of people who have been through tough journeys with pain, as well as a, a lot of um, up-to-date current health information around pain. Uh, and both of those websites are great resources. If you're into social media, I don't do Facebook because um, I really don't have time, but um, I am on Twitter and my handle is Pete PT um and we post research through that um uh that kind of like the key the key platforms we can access knowledge
0: love it love it you've been fantastic and uh again Please very up. very um very counter our, our cor- current dogma but i think that's what we need and it seems to be Evident, that, it is evidence based though ab- ab- absolutely <laughs> and i and think that's the key it's this dialogue that i think al- and that allows our listeners to you know just just pull a little more out of life and uh, don't live so rigidly and, and enjoy it more knowing that, you know, we don't have yeah. to live under the constraints of our current kind of social yeah. conditioning. Yeah, absolutely. And I think
1: just develop confidence in the human body. It is so amazing. Like I've, I've never, I've never ceased to be amazed at what the capacity of the human spirit and the human body is. Um, and we really frightened a lot of people in health. And we take that away and we rob them of it. And I think your mother-in-law is a great example of someone who's probably lost a fair bit of a life because of fear and misunderstanding. And I I think it's it's something that really distresses me. Um, And we need to talk about the resilience and hope and optimism around the human and human beings, because that's what people need. Um, There's too many really unhelpful health messages out there which drive poor care. Um, rather than empowering people to engage and and, and be their own coach for their health
0: what perfect close we're going to leave it there okay Okay. thank you thank you so much for your time Peter enjoy uh, your evening enjoy Christmas and uh, I hope you all the best in 2020 cool thank you thank you Peter how was that for you? As always, I try my best to find the guests that challenge the status quo. The status quo that has led us to the myriad of struggles we grapple with in 2020. And hopefully you agree that Professor Peter O'Sullivan was no exception. I love his fresh and intuitive perspective on the resiliency and capability of the human body and our backs. And with challenging the status quo in mind, I have two questions for you. First, Who do you want us to interview next? What topic needs addressing on this show? Because it's been underrepresented or that there's a leader out there offering a unique and refreshing perspective on an old problem? Let us know. I'd love to get your input. Secondly, are you ready to challenge the status quo of your life? You know, the status quo of who you are your actions, your outcomes, your health and vitality, and your ability to make big life changes this year. Is 2020 the year where you will be your best? Where you will invest in you and your understanding of what it takes to show up to your full potential? If you are ready to grab the bull by the horns and lay down some rock solid foundations that will last you a lifetime, then you need to check out the Be Your Best Self-Optimization Journey. This released just a couple of months ago and already it is proving popular and having an impact. It's a unique 100-day email and community-based education program designed to inspire, enlighten and lift your spirits. There's a link in the show notes to learn more as well as a coupon code to get some money off. So let's make 2020 your year and get your Be Your Best journey started this week. I'll catch you next week, guys, where we have another amazing, great guest on the show. I'm really, really excited about this one. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And, of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favourite social media channel.
1: This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.